0: We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging.
4: I got the Australian Police Medal and it was the second time in Australia that someone who got the Australian Police Medal. Big deal. When I say big deal, I don't say that dismissively because now that my stepson's in the Air Force, he thinks it's hilarious because it's right up there with all these medals. He's got the big print of medals. Oh. So suddenly his stepmother's important because the Australian Police Medal's right up there. Yeah. I wouldn't have a clue. I don't care. In that, you're not in it to get medals. So I had to go and see the Chief Commissioner and they didn't... I couldn't find out why I had to go and see the Chief Commissioner. And I panicked because I was at Broadmeadows and I was working shotgun looking after a news agency and you weren't supposed to have a second job. So I thought, someone's complained about me looking after the news agency for four weeks while they're on holidays. And I thought, oh, that's a big complaint straight to the Chief Commissioner. So I rung people on you, no-one knew, no-one knew, no knew. So then I go to see Kel Blair and he gave me a letter and it had Governor General on the back of the envelope and I thought oh, this is a big complaint. You know? <laughs> and um, and so, so I opened it and then I read it and it said, oh, congratulations, you've been awarded the Australian Police Medal. And the first thing I thought was, oh, relief, you know. And then Blair um, said to me, what's the first thing that you think of? What's the first thing that you think of? And as I said to you before about life, my approach to life is, you know, a sister dying in her sleep at 24 when you're 20. That gives you a good thing on life. And, and I looked and I said, my first thing is that my sister... Who passed away is not here to see it because no. she's always worried about me joining the police force because she said, You lack femininity now. Like, <laughs> fancy doing a job like that. Guess who that is?
0: That is Norell's favourite boss from back in the Broad Meadows CPS days, Lorraine Blackwell. Isn't she adorable? She's amazing, actually, and it took some serious convincing on Norell's part, but we got her in conversation with Norell, too but it's only for patrons, I'm afraid. It'll be your first special Christmas episode and it'll be ready for you on December 11. Okay, on with the show. The following podcast contains content of a graphic violent nature and accounts of child sexual
5: assault. Listener discretion is advised. Graham Stafford, he's got a Facebook site called Justice for Leanne, not for him, Justice for Leanne, it's called, and he's still trying to isolate who might have been the killer.
0: Leanne Sarah Holland was 12 years old in 1991 and she lived in a modest house in Goodna, a suburb of Ipswich in Queensland. I always thought it was a western suburb of Brisbane, which says more about my geography skills than anything, because I must have driven through Goodna literally thousands of times as I made my way between Brisbane and my hometown of Toowoomba. I probably did the drive a thousand times in 1991 alone. Goodner is the home of a giant blue footbridge that straddles the highway and stands as a local landmark. Driving under it is a psychological checkpoint telling you you've either finally left Brisbane or you've finally arrived in Brisbane. But I've never known anyone to stop in Goodna. I'm sure it's different now, but in 1991, Goodna's reputation preceded it. It was known as a tough neighbourhood with a high unemployment rate, a high crime rate and low average income. It's surrounded by prisons and youth detention centres, one of which opened its doors in 1880 as the Goodna Lunatic Asylum. Their title, not mine. As a result, Goodnat has always been the home of halfway houses, which hasn't helped its reputation. Leanne Holland grew up in the area and she knew it well. She was being raised by her single dad and her two elder siblings, who were all hard workers. So she'd had to learn to fend for herself sometimes. And by all accounts, she did it well. Leanne was by no means a tearaway or a troubled child, The biggest issue was that she occasionally forgot to let her family know when she decided to spend the night at a friend's place. Also, at Leanne's place, her father lived downstairs, and she, her sister Melissa, and Melissa's boyfriend Graham lived upstairs. Sometimes though, Leanne fell asleep on her dad's couch and stayed down there for the night, which is very sweet, but it also meant that nobody was overly concerned if they hadn't seen Leanne for a day or two. She could have been upstairs, she could have been downstairs, she could have been at a mate's place. Consequently, it took the family at least 24 hours to realise she was nowhere to be found on the 23rd of September, 1991. Her remains were discovered in bushland in nearby Red Bank Plains three days later. The condition of her body revealed she'd been subjected to a brutal sexual assault and a brutal death. Two days after that, police arrested Leanne's sister's boyfriend, Graham Stafford, on suspicion of her murder. Next week on Australian True Crime, in our final episode for the year, we'll speak to Graham Stafford.
3: We'd actually uh, driven round to uh, the caravan park with uh, her best friend staying, and she said she hadn't seen her, and then a few other places. That's when we were now in the police station.
5: This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people
0: become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. This week, we hear from author and Australian true crime favourite, Robin Bowles, about why she chose to include Graham's conviction for Leanne's murder in her book, Rough Justice.
5: I was asked by my publisher to write a book about miscarriages of justice in Australia and I thought Graham's case would be perfect for the Queensland example because I did a case from each state. So that's how I first got interested and by that time Graham was actually on parole by the time I started doing my research but he wasn't on parole because he'd confessed and, and said he was sorry for the killing uh, that's normally how you get parole because he completely maintained his innocence the whole time he'd been in prison. It was just that his prison sentence was nearly up and they were, and they were trying to reintegrate him into the community. So they let them out on short, short visits and get them a job and so on. So he was living with his parents, wasn't allowed to talk to me because I was classified as media. But I did go and talk to his parents and found out the ins and outs of the whole story and it was horrifying, really. When did, when was he released? What year? 2005. Um, my book came out in 2007. But Graham's yes.
0: been petitioning for a pardon since then? Yes. He's never stopped declaring his innocence in the case? That's right. The suburbs that we're talking about here are in the west western suburbs of Brisbane and being from Toowoomba, these are the suburbs we used to drive through to get back and forth. Red Bank Plains and Goodna. That area, very working class area, a bit rough and tumble, but to me very familiar and almost comforting. I can imagine this family, this dad and two daughters living there together. One of the daughter's boyfriends has moved in. It seems like a pretty happy little household.
5: Well, it did seem that way and um, Leanne was quite young. She was only 12 at the time this happened. Her sister was 20. Graham was 21. Dad worked as well. So she grew up really in a fairly freewheeling household. She'd been living with her father for quite a number of years uh, after the breakdown of his marriage. And she was pretty much allowed to come and go as she wished. And she was very untidy, according to Graham.
0: As 12 year old girls <laughs> yes. will be. And certainly, this is sexist of me to say, but without mum. Yeah. screaming at you to clean up your room. I know my husband and I live separately and the way my kids are allowed to live at his house is very different to the way they live at mine.
5: Absolutely. So, well, you know, I I once um, bought a, a, a birthday card for one of my kids which said, happy birthday from clean up your room. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. and, and the way they used to deal with it was just kick everything under the bed. Right. But, but, uh, so, but, but Leanne's <laughs> sister
0: took a lot of responsibility, didn't she, for Leanne in terms of sort of filling that mother role. And... I think
5: the, the whole family pulled together quite well. Yeah. And Graham was a very quiet, sort of unassuming guy. He was a fitter and turner and he'd been brought up in a nice English household and parents are English, well-mannered, uh, fairly quiet. His big love was his car, his Gemini, and he spent a lot of time looking after that. And uh, it was just a, yeah, just a normal household, really. And when and... you say
0: freewheeling, I understand what you mean, but at the same time, not... You wouldn't call it neglectful. Oh, no,
5: she wasn't running wild or being neglected at all. But quite often, for example, she didn't come home some nights because she was at girlfriends' places and often forgot to let them know where she was. So people, when she first disappeared, that indicated that, you know, she might have been somewhere else. So they weren't that worried about her the first night or so. And so that's, that's one of the issues, I suppose, as to why she wasn't reported missing a bit earlier. But um, the the whole story came about because Leanne was on holidays. Graham had a rostered day off; it was a Monday, and uh, the other two had gone off to work as they did. And he was fiddling about with his car and uh, i made a note in the in my story that i wrote that he actually had a busier day at home than if he'd been to work because he did have an awful lot he did do an awful lot of things that day most of which he could substantiate so um his his day really started off after everyone left for for work and leanne was hanging about in the in the garden it was a warm day and uh she was a bit bored she had nothing to do she rang her father and asked him if she could dye her hair and that graham had said he would help her if if she went and got the dye she was blonde The police later made quite a lot of this because they felt that, you know, a grown man bending over, a young girl at a sink, uh, something might have gone amiss. And they first, when they found her body, they actually did think that she had dyed her hair red because it was just completely rich, dark red. But it was actually just full of blood. But they never actually told the jury that. They just said that when she was found, her hair was a rich, dark red. So there were little misinformation bits slipped in all the way through this case. So she didn't die ahead. She went off and and, uh, went. Graham said she went off to a shopping centre to meet up with one of her friends. Graham, his day was fairly full. Between 1 and 2 he visited a friend. At 2.30 he was back working on his car and it fell on on him and hurt his arm. And so he then made an appointment with the doctor at 4 o'clock. Before he went to the doctor... He went to Franklin's and bought some groceries for which he had a receipt, which was marked 2.18pm. And then at 2.59, he took his car to the car wash on the way to the doctor. By three at 3.30, before he went to the doctor, he received a phone call from his girlfriend, Melissa, saying she was coming home at 4.30 and wanted to go and do some shopping. So basically, she was home by 4.20 and they went shopping. So his whole day, really, one way or another, was able to be documented by either receipts or doctor's appointments or car wash or something like that. Later, a forensic scientist gave evidence that the kind of injuries that uh, were sustained by Leanne and the amount of time that would have been needed to completely clean up afterwards would have been at least two hours. Uh, they just, he didn't believe, he'd examined 4,000 murders, so he was talking from a position of strength, and the other thing he said was that he'd never ever seen anyone being able to completely clean a house of blood, not with that sort of bloodbath that must have taken place with with Leanne's injuries. So Graham's clothes that he was wearing on that day, which were uh, confirmed by a neighbour who'd spoke to him over the fence when he was working on his car, had no blood on them at all. So there were some issues with the cleaning up of the house and and the blood. Anyway, uh, Leanne didn't come home that night. The following day, they were a little bit concerned about her. Father rang a friend of hers. She wasn't there and they hadn't seen her. So they decided that on that Tuesday afternoon, they would go and report her missing. From then on, the family was quite stressed and on Wednesday, Graham was leaving. Leanne's sister took a day off and Graham did decide to go to work but he was very stressed out by the whole situation. He was worried about Melissa, he was worried about Leanne and he decided to go and download a bit with a friend who lived in Redbank. So instead of going straight to work, he went to... To Red Bank first. His friend wasn't there, so he ended up going back into work a bit later and he only stayed for part of the day and then he went home. On Thursday at lunchtime, her body was found in the Red Bank reserve and it was quite well hidden as well. But on Wednesday, the police had al- already decided in their own minds, it seemed, that Graham had something to do with Leanne's disappearance. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's that, that
0: idea of looking very close to the victim and then working in circles outwards. He was not a member of the family, but lived with the family. He was home that day, alone with her. You can understand why at first glance they thought, this is the place to start.
5: And there were other issues. The police descended on their house around about midday on, in, uh, on Wednesday. And the father had been cleaning the house up a bit because it was a bit of a mess. In his own words, it was a pigsty. So he he was cleaning up and the water from the floor mopping that he'd done was still in the bucket. And when the police tested that, there was a trace of blood in that water. And then they found drops of blood from the front step through to the bathroom. Um, and it was not really enough to get DNA from, but it was obviously, it was blood. Uh, So they found this blood trail and a really interesting thing happened that there was a detective called Crick who then decided he was going to have a look in Graham's car and he went out alone and opened up the boot, moved a toolbox and found a maggot, a big, fat, juicy maggot, not a shriveled-up, desiccated or dead one. It was very much alive and so he put this maggot in a test tube and labelled it number three, which was very interesting to me because so far that was the only maggot that had been seen. Mm. So I, wasn't, I couldn't quite understand why it was called number three at that stage. It doesn't appear in his notes that he found this very significant piece of evidence. There was no video made of the car boot with the maggot in situ, even though they videoed a lot of other stuff. And there was nobody else who um, could confirm the presence of the maggot that you know he'd found. Then the next day, the body was found out at Red Bank, and Mr Crick was out there, and he took two samples, one from her head and one from around her anus, which had been badly damaged, and labelled those one and two. No. So I'm thinking to myself when I was reading this, why would they be one and two when he's already found one in the boot there were also some tire tracks out there which became significant in graham's trial even though the ground was quite hard three cigarette butts and poor leanne had been actually burnt with cigarettes so they may have been used to burn horror they may have been the perpetrator's cigarettes they didn't collect those in even though they're such a good source of dna and they found no dna on her body that wasn't hers Graham's or anybody else's. There'd clearly been a sexual assault, but no DNA. She'd received 10 blows to the head with a very strong instrument, uh, completely pulverised her face, and that's when she bled so much into her hair, and she'd been sexually assaulted, and there were other horrible marks, and she had a lot of cuts on her arms from where she obviously fought off her attackers, and she had cigarette burns all over her. It would have been a horrible, horrible death, and so... The public was very shocked, of course, by all these details when they came out and particularly the jury. Eventually, they decided they would charge Graham for her murder and the evidence they used, basically, was they found... They said they found one strand of long fair hair in the boot of his car. No root on it, though, so it couldn't necessarily be Leanne's. And it was later found that it wasn't in the boot of the car. It was actually on a sponge that was found in the bathroom but they said it was on the in the boot of the car at the time. So it was actually in a sponge in her own bathroom. So yes. it's completely insignificant, but it was misrepresented as being in the boot of his car. Correct. Then they had the lone maggot, of course, along with items one and two as well. They had the minute blood traces, which were very minute. And in a household, you often get i mean i, I yeah, cut myself know. all the time
0: when graham injured himself with the, with the car did mm-hmm. he bleed
5: then I, I don't think so i think the car fell on him but what did happen was leanne's brother craig who didn't live with the family but visited regularly he came forward and told the police that he'd been visiting his father and he would cut his foot badly in the backyard and so he'd walked through the house with this cut foot to the bathroom to clean his foot up the forensic scientist who was given the samples of blood taken from the house was not told that there could have been another family member who had bled. And family members often share quite a lot of DNA attributes. So They're not exactly the same, of course, unless they're identical twins, but they are quite common and so they share them. So that was not told to the jury either. They also based their thoughts on the fact that Graham had removed a chair from the boot of his car, which normally he carried around, a folding chair, because he used to go and watch his girlfriend play netball. So he'd sit on the sidelines and watch her. And the netball season was over. So when he was doing the car, he just put the, sh- the chair in the shed. But the police attached a lot of importance to that as well. And the tyre the, the tracks were significant because his car had Bridgestone tyres on it and they were different at the front to the back. They were different widths. And allegedly these tyre tracks were similar, but an awful lot of cars have Bridgestone tyres on them. Anyway, they, the first forensic scientist that the uh, police produced said that Leanne, based on the growth of the maggots, which is a very interesting science in itself, entomology of... I've always been down as an organ donor when I die, but then I had cancer a couple of years ago, so they don't want me anymore. Oh. Uh, so, I'd love so. your organs, Robin, just, just for the record. <laughs> well, I'm very interested in this post-mortem stuff and... I interviewed a guy a few years ago called Bill Blass who started what's called The Body Farm in America and Patricia Cormore wrote a book about it. There's one in Sydney now. There is indeed Mm. and so when I interviewed Bill I said to him you know how did you get into this business and he said well I used to be a vet and so I, I came across a lot of dead cows and so the police used to come to me and say well how long do you think it's taken for this body, person body, to be colonized by insects because you know, you have a lot to do with dead cows out in the paddock, you know, and so it was a sort of an extrapolation. And he thought there's really a, a gap here in in knowledge, and so in the early 90s, I think it was, he he set up the first body farm in America. But as you say, there's now one in Sydney, so they are now going to get my body. My husband is horrified Aye, about wow. it. Yeah, good on you, Robin. But, That's so really I may cool. be, I may end up my my uh, time on this earth moldering away between some grumpy old yeah. tree and a dirty old creek or something but but I, I have so. spoken
0: to Melanie Archer who's the head entomologist here in Melbourne Yes, at the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine and she explained to me that really all they can do in terms of time of death is estimate the shortest possible time of death. That's the closest they can get to it. It's not like on no, TV. They exactly. can't say this maggot says she died at
5: 7pm. No, no. That's right and it's very hit and miss at times mm. and my friend Shelley Robertson who's a forensic pathologist, she's done about 10,000 autopsies I think and she said to me, this is how I always tell the, the police the time of death is from the time the person was last seen alive to when their is discovered yeah and she mm-hmm. said she won't ever go into any more detail than that because it's too hit and miss so we had we had this uh, you know disagreement at the trial with various entomologists some said that she had to have been killed between 8am and 4.30pm on the Monday. And then there was a South Australian entomologist who was brought up for the defence, but she was given the wrong times of day and the wrong weather conditions. At the time, she said uh, Leanne probably died at 10am on Tuesday, which was great news for Graham because he was at work that day. But later on, she changed that because she was told a different set of circumstances about the weather conditions and the heat and so on.
0: After the break, Robin tells us about the new evidence that led to Graham Stafford's murder conviction being quashed.
2: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.
0: Coming up next week on Australian True Crime, we hear about the day Leanne's body was discovered from the man accused of her killing, Graham Stafford. But next, former Detective Graham Crowley was hired by the parents of Graham Stafford to investigate the evidence against him independently. The key piece of the prosecution's case, the maggot Detective Crick claimed to have found in Graham Stafford's car two days after Leanne Holland's
5: disappearance, was the first thing they wanted to look into. He waited patiently for a period of three days in a row, which pr- were predicted to be around about the same temperature, as happened after Leanne's death. He then recorded over the three days a maximum temperature of 44 degrees and a minimum of 11, which seemed a little bit unlikely that a maggot would survive in that environment with nothing to eat. And in such temperature, you'd think he would have been cooked. So that was an interesting experiment, which, you know, didn't really help Graham much, but it, at least it showed that the lone maggot was a bit sus. And then bow repair were extraordinarily helpful. When he got the car back, they put the same tyres on his car, Graham's car, and drove 450 kilometres, which was how long Graham had had the tyres. He was very fastidious about record-keeping in his car, so they knew that, and then tested those tire marks against the photographs that were taken at the scene and they didn't match so they were terrific and so it went to a second appeal Graham made history in Australia by being the first person to get a second appeal it's now possible in South Australia and Tasmania if you can demonstrate compelling new evidence but back then it wasn't but because Graham Crowley had found out so many things he was successful in getting a second appeal but the astonishing thing was about the second appeal that the judges said they disallowed the appeal and they said that even if Leanne hadn't been killed the way the police said she had he still could have killed her so you know they were acknowledging basically that the police case was flawed but they didn't allow any of the new evidence so there was actually no physical evidence apart from the maggot is that right uh, well, there was yes, there was blood. Oh, there was the blood uh, yes. across
0: the floor, but it hadn't been DNA tested, so we didn't know whose blood it was. No, that's what correct. about the hammer?
5: Graham had a hammer that went missing, and so the police alleged that it was his hammer that had been used to whack Leanne. But the the injuries were so horrific that it could have been anything. It could have been an iron bar. It could have been any any metal or, you know. So they
0: weren't able to ascertain No, there there wasn't
5: like a hammer hit as it were, it was just like she she was pulverised it sounds awful doesn't it The Who Killed Leanne book came out by Paul and Graham and as I said it was quite well received and they got a fair bit of radio time and, and so on and One of the people who heard this story on the radio was a a guy who was a truckie. We need to call him Bluey because we're not allowed to identify jurors, but that was his nickname anyway. So Juror Bluey, I call him in, in my story. And I was able to contact him because he heard this story, Graham Crowley, being interviewed on the radio about Leanne's death. And he was a juror. So he rang the radio station. He's, he's got a lovely turn of phrase, juror blurry, and uh, was pretty dirty with them because he said he was sick to death of all this, Graham didn't get a fair trial and it wasn't fair, the jury made a mistake and, you know, that he was there and he was sick of the people putting him down as a member of the jury for putting Graham away and the scientific evidence was there and so on and so on. So Graham Crowley rang him back and asked him if he would like to have a look at the book. And he wasn't very keen on it, but Graham sent him a book anyway. And so he had a look at it. He thought, mm. "He told me later, you know, truckies they don't read much. They just look at road <laughs> They <laughs> listen to our podcasts. Yeah. So short yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. podcast. They sure do. Podcast. Hello, Jura Bluey, if you're out there, mate. <laughs> I loved having a chat to you. Um, so." He read this book and he he was supposed to start work at 2am and he read until 10pm at one sitting because when he was supposed to be sleeping, he couldn't get it out of his mind. And he was just shocked that so much had been withheld from the the jury. And he was really, really upset about it. And he rang Graham's mother to apologise, basically, to say, you know... We might have got it wrong and I feel terrible about that. That's how I got his number because he left his number with her. So I had a long chat to him and I'd like to quote him if I can. I've got a short little quote from him. And he said to me, even if Graham gets his name cleared, I've still got to live with it. The jury did the right thing, yeah, dates, times, temperatures, experts – Can I, a truck driver, argue with a fucking scientist? I've got to take what this insect Sheila says. I feel filthy about it. They wanted Graham Stafford right or wrong. So, you know, he he was really upset about it. And I often think to myself, sometimes the juries, I think about the Sue Neil Fraser jury, how they must feel, you know, now that so much has come to light Mm -hmm. since she was sent to jail and other Miscarriages of justice around Australia—that the jury does the right thing. They, you know, they're just twelve people off the street, and they have to believe what they're told in the trial. And something
0: I've learned from this podcast is how much can be kept from juries. That's that seems very pertinent to what they've been enlisted to consider.
5: Well, when I was attending the Murdoch trial—that's Bradley John Murdoch—we've talked about Peter Falconio before, and when I was attending that trial. I discovered that um, Peter Falconio had uh, done a lot of work on his his combi in Sydney, including putting in false panels, in the not false panels, but removable panels in the lining of the combi. And my suspicion was raised about whether he might have been carrying some drugs there, behind the panels, for someone. And people do get tourists to carry. I remember the two grannies who were yes. arrested in a combi as well. And mm-hmm. you know, they were they were couriering. And um, so I had this quite strong suspicion. And then during my visit to Darwin, I actually stayed with the editor of the Northern Territory Times. He very kindly gave me a spare room. And uh, he had a mate in the police force who wanted to have a talk to me. And that guy told me that drugs had been found in the combi, but that nobody was making any fuss about it because the the DPP didn't want the jury to think of Peter and Joanne as anything other than innocent tourists bobbing along and being waylaid by this wicked gunman. Mm. So then I had a word to Murdoch's lawyer and I said, "Look, you know, you need to follow this up because <laughs> it could be a whole different ball game here. And he didn't want to do anything about it because he said, we don't want anyone to think that Brad was a vicious drug-running killer. You know, we want them to think he was on another road altogether and nowhere near the van. So why would we bring that up? So... Well, I mean that, did, that
0: ploy did not work out very well
5: because no, we ended
0: up thinking he's every bit the vicious drug running killer.
5: Exactly. So, you know, Jeffrey Robertson once told me that because we have such an adversarial system that it's not really necessarily who has the best lawyer but who has the best liar. And then somebody else said to me once a great outcome is if you know the lawyer well, but an even greater outcome is if you know the judge well. So, you know, there's all these little truisms about our adversarial system. And unfortunately, because one side has to win and one side has to lose, you end up with mistakes sometimes Mm. because everybody plays to win. Do you really, after all
0: of your research, you believe that Graham Stafford's incarceration was a miscarriage of justice? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Who else? What what other scenario do you consider possible
5: in Leanne's death?
0: Because you mentioned earlier, I don't know if this was Freudian or not, but you mentioned attackers...
5: When you talked about oh, yeah, somebody actually got in touch with Graham not all that long ago and said that there were two attackers and that they knew who they were and that they were going to tell the police about it and apparently they did tell the police but they weren't interested because you see Graham's done his time and the the really amazing thing to me is that although all this extra evidence came to light and all the evidence about how crappy the first lot of evidence was, has also come to light. The the only thing that Queensland government was prepared to offer Graham was another trial. Well, why would he want to have another trial? He'd already been found guilty in one trial and done his whole sentence. He didn't get any time off because he didn't confess. So he did the full sentence, 15 years. Why would he want to have another trial? Yeah. Why so, would you
0: trust that system if it had already well, convicted you falsely?
5: And after all those years, too, like twenty yeah. years earlier, who's going to remember what? You know, I mean, half the time these days, I can't remember what I had for breakfast last week. Robin, I've got to ask one question. Yes, it's burning in my mind, Go. and it's actually about Paul Wilson and Graham Crowley mm-hmm. about the book because. Paul Wilson, a few years ago, got convicted of sexually abusing a child. Yes. And went to jail. And he was like a big name. Does that throw a bit of shade on his... Credibility. Cre- yeah. His cre- what do you well, think... Well, I have to say that Paul was a friend of mine for many years. Um, I actually was a writer-in-residence at Bond Uni because he and his wife, who worked at the uni in a separate capacity, invited me to be their first writer-in-residence. So I was there for a week. And uh, as I said, I spent three days with him and Graham Crowley and partners on Bribey Island and I knew him uh, also through emails and conversations, phone calls and so on. I always had great respect for him. I thought he was very well versed in criminology and he had a very great reputation in that area. And I, I have to say, nobody was more shocked than I was when I read the reports about that situation. So historical crimes, committed to stand trial for four counts of
0: indecent treatment of a child under 12 years old. I can't imagine how shocking it would be to hear that a friend...
5: who was. Someone quite that you shocking. respected. And someone who had such a high profile in mm. um, criminology itself and treating people the right way, if you like, and making sure that justice was done. I suppose... If it's possible to put that crime in a space of its own here, it doesn't actually negate, in my view, it doesn't negate all the research and all the other work that he has done over his lifetime and it was good work it was it was sound and and quite often conducted with other colleagues who also you know had great reputation in those areas. I guess from
0: Graham's perspective he has been convicted of murdering and raping a child and one of his greatest advocates is a child rapist. It could have had quite an impact on him. um, I think it it would have an impact on people's believability of the research unfortunately and the book and
5: the book was really graham crowley's work it was an outstanding piece of investigation that went on for years and cost him thousands he didn't get paid for it because the, the graham's parents ran out of money but he kept going once he realized that you know there was something sus about this case he just did it because he felt he had to he was a really outstanding guy i really like him a lot potential perpetrators are there any leads other than the Facebook message? Well, there were a couple of people who were identified by Crowley, Graham Crowley. Three potential suspects were identified by Crowley. Two of them, at least, had lived in uh, Goodna and New Leanne. Now, a couple, one of them, I believe, was in prison with Graham just down the hall, and um, there were two others wandering around, and Crowley came up with quite a lot of evidence to to the effect that it may have been one of those three people or even two of them. But, you see, the thing is that you'll often see police, like when Greg Domisavich walked out of the court, I remember it quite well because I was standing there, the media, you know, there's a bristle of microphones and the media saying, well, what do you think now to the police? You know, what are you going to do now? And, and they say, well, we don't have any other suspects. That's their comment to say, we reckon we got the right bloke. But, you know, he's got off because he had a good lawyer. Yeah. So when people say they don't have any other suspects, when police say that, that really means that they think that, you know, the guilty party has actually got away with it. I think in this case, you see, he's, Graham Stafford is done and dusted as far as the cops are concerned. You know, he was charged. He was found guilty by a jury. He's done his 15 years. Why are we going on about this all the time, you know? If you take that view, it means that Leanne Holland is done and dusted. The yep. matter has
0: been dealt with and and yet it's possibly not true at all.
5: No, her killer's probably still out there and has been walking free for 20 years. And I, I suppose that's really what drives Graham Stafford. And he's got a Facebook site called Justice for Leanne. Not for him. Justice for Leanne, it's called. He's still trying to uh, isolate who might have been the killer. And... There was another little twist to his story, which really shocked me, that when he turned down the possibility of of another trial, uh, he was threatened with deportation because as a convicted killer, he is meant to be deported if he's a foreign national. And he came to Australia with his English parents when he was six. They got naturalised, but he never did. So he actually technically is still you know, a UK citizen. And uh, so they were threatening him with with that as well if he didn't lie down and keep quiet, which I thought was, you know, pretty horrible. Next week, we hear from Graham Stafford about the
0: day he learned Leanne was dead and the life he's led since, including his 15 years in jail for her murder.
3: There are key moments that will stay with me. Like, I I remember, like they were yesterday. Uh, I can remember... um, Mum, Dad and um, Stacy, my sister are uh, visiting me at the Ipswich watch house. And, um, you know, I'm in this dirty, dirty cell and the toilet's not working, there's flea infested blankets. I mean, i do not saying it was prepared for me, but uh, it was, and all I had was this little hole in the door to go and converse with them. And they're saying, everything's gonna be fine, you know. And, and that with me forever because it sort of it was the first time that it really hit me that they were you know saying that i was the one that did it
0: thank you for downloading this episode of australian true crime we'll be back with that next week
1: luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
0: As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available.